my goodness gracious, we are back, 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 back again. Hello, scorekeepers. It is time for another episode of The Score. Woohoo! Yay, yay, yay. Hey, the podcast where two, three, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> There are three of us. There are I have only two of microphones here. <laughs> One of you. <laughs> Somebody's getting fired. I didn't tell, I didn't tell you. All. We had to do layoffs. <laughs> We're three. We are opera administrators. Uh, talk about all of the news that you can use from the classical music and opera industry, talk about the state of the world, pop culture, I'm sure we will get into Drag Race at some point. <laughs> Maybe The Bachelor if I had my way, because I'm basic AF. <laughs> um, but I should probably say my name. Um, my name is Rocky Jones, and as always, I am here with my two ingenious, wonderful, beautiful, incredible co-hosts, Paige Reynolds and Lee Bynum. Hello, how are you both? Hello. <laughs> are you all enjoying well, this fake spring here in the <laughs> Enjoying it for what it is. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Yes, it's a beautiful day in the 50s. We have probably one month until we can, you know, feel like it probably won't snow again. But you know, Lee, it's your your first Minnesota winter. It's almost over with. How are you? Is it? Well, <laughs> well you made about. it through the most through the worst you, part. Yes, right. You made it exactly. The worst. Yes. 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 Exactly. It was. I I mean, it was it was long. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a long winter. Yesterday we opened the window in the bedroom, and I actually think it was the first time we'd opened it since like maybe October, November, just because it's been so cold that opening it isn't cute. So that was like, oh, wow, has it really been like five months since we just like opened a window in our apartment? So yeah, it <laughs> yeah. was, yeah, and it then, was a and, lot. <laughs> and then did you get a face full of pollen? Well, it was just so nice. Like, so yesterday I went out and took a longish walk, maybe like three miles. Um, and it was amazing just to kind of like be outside and not have my fingers cramp up because they're so cold. So I'm really looking forward to fake spring or not something that <laughs> <laughs> facilitates like being outside in nature, getting a little piece of fresh air, you know, seeing the occasional human being walking by. I'm I'm looking forward to this shift that is surely coming at some point. Yes, come on, walking the children in nature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I hope I, I wish that for you too. I wish that for us all. <laughs> I was thinking about taking a walk today, but it's just like I don't trust it. I don't trust it. There's going to be a patch yeah. of ice. <laughs> the side works were 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 pretty rough like yeah. there were still yeah. black ice spots and six huge puddles right because the snow has got to go somewhere and where it goes is just right there so yeah you got to give it a couple more days mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah i learned the hard way <laughs> yeah. i was trying to like make sure my dog didn't pull me like the whole way i was like, oh, oh, hold on girl wait 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 you can't. <laughs> that's why i have a cat 
<laughs> have we ever talked about my neighbor who walks his cat? Has, no. Is this a conversation no. we've had? No. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know his name. If I did, I would just say it because I feel like if somebody's out here walking a cat, you really need to pay attention to them. But he will leash his cat in like the little courtyard between my my apartment is like w shaped the building is so like we see other folks doing what they do and he just goes out there and just walks the cat and the cat somehow participates in it so the whole thing is mm. it's it is one of the things i will never forget about this minnesota experience i had never seen that and living in new york for 25 years i saw some stuff but this one is very new to me but yeah i have a neighbor who walks his cat I mean, I've seen cats on leashes on like social media, but I've never seen it in the flesh. In the flesh, in this neighborhood with my, and the first time Damien saw it, he like whispered, Lee. <laughs> I'm like, why are you whispering at me? He just like points and we both see it like mouths agape. Even McGonagall is sitting there like, what is going on out there? It was a whole lot. <laughs> well, cause like Delilah, she, once it gets nice out, she wants to be on the porch 24 seven and she's looking out the window. We have to open the windows for her. It's a whole thing, but like, we can't like go out and like, you know, grab the mail or grab an Amazon package without knowing exactly like where she is because right. she will run out. And like, she doesn't go anywhere. She just goes to like the end of the sidewalk and then it's like, oh my God, I've, I've gone too far, I've done too much. <laughs> <laughs> and then you run out and you scoop her up and we like freak her freak out. But when we first got her, we were like, oh, well, she really wants to be outside. Like maybe we should like get one of those leashes. And so we bought a leash and like all it took was 30 seconds of trying to get this leash on this mm -hmm. cat and it was i it, it, i think it's the second maddest she's ever been <laughs> the, the the first was when we experimented with getting another cat that's <laughs> we're we're a one cat house, <laughs> but I'm I'm actually kind of legit impressed that this guy was able to get a leash on the cat and then get the cat outside and then get the cat to move. That's definitely the most impressive part. I've only seen, I think maybe once, a person with a cat, and I was walking my dog, and oh no, I saw the cat. Then my dog saw the cat. The cat was across the street and my dog still just went off. She just looked, she looked agitated, like in the way that she did. <laughs> she, she was agitated in a way like, what is going on? Mom, what is that? Do I need to protect you from it? It's smaller than me, but it's like an animal. Like, I, what is going on? What is going on? It's on a leash, but it's not a dog. Like, she was... She was just barking and like just going up. So up is down, left is right. <laughs> right. Maybe latte is right, and it's just unnatural. I, I don't. I'm with latte. I, I thought seem, it was odd. It doesn't seem right. And in retrospect, like I do, like she was justified in her anger. Yeah. <laughs> Looking yeah. back on that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well. 
speaking of uh, amazing things, um, but in this case, perfectly natural things. <laughs> you like that segue? Did you like that? Did you like that? <laughs> amazing, perfectly natural. Um, Paige, I don't know if we've ever talked about on the show though, but for the past couple of years, you have been studying to be a doula. That's which is right. incredible and recently you were a part of your first birth congratulations Yay. first of all thank you which is thank incredible you, you. but like I just wanted to just shout that out because that is so cool to me <laughs> <laughs> and I just would like what was that experience like can you like tell us Ooh. about it yeah, it's it's something I love to talk about and <laughs> I feel like it's been like the highlight of my life for like a a few weeks now ever since it happened like folks ask how I'm doing and I'm like, well, <laughs> I saw birth and um well, first of all, it was like a dear dear friend of mine um who I consider like a chosen chosen family um and she lives in Maryland just outside of Baltimore so I traveled to to be with her there and um it's <laughs> there's so many things I can say but one of the remarkable things about about birth for me uh or most remarkable is especially when it's somebody close to you um how just in tune you feel with them like it is a whole spiritual experience to like be there for somebody while they're bringing life into the world like mm. I had this moment even just driving through I, I think I was in Pennsylvania at this point like driving through the mountains and it was the Sunday evening that I was supposed to arrive in Maryland and my friend's babies do that do that week she's actually hoping that she'll start early labor at this point um because she has an induction scheduled for that Thursday and doesn't want to be induced. Um, she wants to just do things naturally. And I just had this moment of like, huh, she's going into labor, isn't she? Like, I just <laughs> knew it. I just knew it was happening. And then sure enough, when I got there, she was like, so I've been having contractions, oh, wow. like early labor ones, like they're far apart. I was like, you won't believe it. <laughs> like I had this moment in the car of just like knowing, just knowing and I mean, I think for me, especially as a doula, like this being my first birth, a lot of it was like that and really affirming that, you know, at some point you, yeah, you've gone through this training and there's like all the things, you know, and you, you like stress over packing your doula bag, right. And like, <laughs> you know, and reviewing, reviewing all the different comfort techniques you can do But then at some point it like, it's kind of just like, okay, you know what to do. And your main thing right now is to just be like fully in tune or attentive to the needs of the person giving birth and uh and sometimes their support people too like their like her partner um and that was true I was like whatever nerves just like kind of felt melted away and like it felt natural like I was just like present and just you know in it in it and then like getting rest when I could <laughs> like <laughs> and taking naps there wasn't like time to to worry too much um yeah, you just help them out and then you take a nap. But it was gorgeous and beautiful, the miracle of life. My friend got to have the exact birth she wanted. Mm -hmm. And especially as uh, someone who is uh, identifies as a, as a Black woman um, or Black woman aligned, like for both of us, seeing that was just really, really healing. Like knowing 
the disparities amongst like black women and, and infants and kind of the the hardships that we have finding quality care or even mm-hmm. before Absolutely. you have, give birth or before you get pregnant were you able to have quality like health care before then and that impacts a lot and all of that but anyway just for her to have like the birth that exact birth that she wanted um and to feel completely supported have the exact people there that she wanted it was just incredible and like so healing i i could i could keep it let me know if i'm rambling i could keep going on like, yeah, yeah not it rambling was at all because like that just sounds like such a I've, i mean we were i would say i i described it as a powerful experience before we started uh recording but that's uh, that even as it was coming out of my mouth, it was like, oh, that sounds like the understatement of the century. (laughs) (laughs) I keep telling, one of the things I keep telling folks is to like see your friend do that, like Mm -hmm. someone you love also, Mm -hmm. is just a whole other uh, experience. (laughs) I'm also like, I'm, I'm also now extra confused about how anybody can like, mistreat or (laughs) degrade or try to steal the rights from anybody with a vagina because that is some powerful issue that I witnessed (laughs) like like, (laughs) I was looking at my like I was of course like helping her and like trying to soothe her and calm her especially during the most intense contractions and on the way to the hospital when it was like really down to the wire and we were rushing there and stuff but I was also just like looking at her like oh my look at her like just oh my god she's having a bit like she's so strong oh my gosh and of course like they probably (laughs) feel like all kinds of things like excitement and a whole lot of pain but (laughs) even if she's Mm -hmm. there in like discomfort I'm just like oh my god this is so beautiful she look at my friend she's so beautiful like she looks so beautiful doing this and so powerful and like wow I'm watching a goddess on earth like that's (laughs) that is the feeling of just like should I bow should I bring offerings because this is a divine moment like uh just just incredible um yeah and I would say it's I also share it's like it was especially healing for us on a generational level I mean we're really we're really close friends so it was already going to bring us closer together but our mothers both had traumatic experiences um, having us. Like I was underweight or, or something, there was something developmentally with me. And so my mother had to be separated from me um, after I was born. Like she didn't get to take me home right away. And that was traumatic for her. Yeah, um, uh, yeah she was like, <laughs> and she she talks about it almost casually, but she was just like, yeah, it was absolutely traumatic. Like I cried every day. Like I was depressed. Like it was one of the worst like moments of my life. and. I was like, wow, okay. Like <laughs> to be the worst and like the happiest is is complicated. And then her, my friend's mother hemorrhaged uh, during having her. And so that was a traumatic experience, but then we were able to kind of rewrite the story through this or rewrite different, create different stories for ourselves. Um, so yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Special. That does I can't wait to do more yeah. of it. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Rocky, have you ever experienced a, a live birth like that? I have not. 
at all. Um, and I don't even really have, um, I have a couple of friends who have had babies um, who have described the experience as, you know, divine and life-changing and amazing and their kids are fortunately you know healthy and beautiful and you know great but I have never even been sort of close <laughs> <laughs> to anything verging on that have you Lee? yes I have um we actually could have used you Paige I don't know what you were doing 15 years ago I guess middle school was <laughs> taking precedence at the time but when my very dear friend Tanya gave birth to her eldest son Thomas who is my godson I was in the delivery room and it was indeed a beautiful experience it was also terrifying it scared the 27 year old hell out of me but it was kind of amazing to kind of go through this entire process with her from like literally being in the room when she found out she was pregnant to being there for Thomas's birth. It was beautiful and overwhelming and, and shocking and interesting. By the end of it, Tanya was crying, Thomas was crying, I was crying, all for different <laughs> reasons, but I'm sure it looked really beautiful to strangers. Um, it was a it was a great moment and you know it it brought the two of us so much closer and we were already good friends right so it's it really is kind of you know it is in no way an exaggeration when people describe the miracle of life right to really be able to see what that moment is and to see somebody come into existence breathing air for the first time like it was really really remarkable mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about, you know, re medical racism before on the show. And so I'm just curious, you know, is, is that one of the reasons why you wanted to get into uh, doula, doula ship? Doula <laughs> doula Sometimes I use, I also use a uh, birth work interchangeably. Birth work, that's, that, yeah. that's much better. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, to like provide a safe space, you know, especially for Black women, um, you know, who are often just underserved or overlooked, um, you know, when it comes to medical issues. Is that one of the reasons why you wanted to get into it? Definitely. That was definitely one of the reasons. And I actually, actually, I think the first reason was more so the, um, the, I guess not just shame, but kind of, hmm. Well, I, I, I guess like shame and like, I wish there was a better word. There's another word I could think of, but especially around, around birth, around like our reproductive systems in general, um, that there's just not a whole lot of open conversation on how those things actually work there's not a whole lot of conversation or at least honest conversation um, that I experienced around things like abortions. Like, mm -hmm. so that was actually mm -hmm. where I started. Like before I even did a birth doula training, I did an abortion doula training. And that was partly inspired by like friends and stuff in college who had had those experiences and felt like they couldn't talk to anybody. And like, here I am learning way down the road that like they went through that and we're just like dealing with it, like in their dorm room by themselves, like oh not knowing. Oh, I can't even yeah, imagine. Like maybe told a friend uh. or two. And 
yeah so I it was like that just that stigma um and I mean also I, I grew up in the church and so like you know church there can especially be a stigma around mm-hmm. talking around anything that has to do with reproduction or sexuality beyond just sex is between a wife and a husband and you save it for that so and it's like the conversation no one even wants you to go beyond that um and so having those a lot of those experiences made me want to to be a resource to I was like there's so many people going through things alone when they don't when they don't have to and I know it's just like knowing, not knowing where to start or not knowing someone who's a doula, not even knowing what a doula is, if that exists. Um, yeah. And, and taking some of that out of just the medical institutions that are already failing us and having some redistributing some of the knowledge that should just be baseline that like everybody should just get in sex ed and like things like that. And you know, learning how to going back to some old ways of communal care and being able to take take care of each other. You ask your cousin for about this thing, and she actually gives you accurate information. Like there's a you know <laughs> a mm-hmm. passing of of kind of of knowledge among especially folks with uteruses, folks who experience menstruation, folks who experience birth. Like, yeah. So I, I think it was more even more so out of out of that. Mm. And then, like, learning about the medical racism was even more of a catalyst. Wow. I mean, that is, I mean, seriously, that's just so cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and and I just think it's such a, a beautiful service um, to be able to provide for folks in the community who need it. Um, I mean, I wonder, should we take it all the way back? And just in case anybody who doesn't know what a doula is... Do you mind just explaining what that is? Sure, I'm happy to. So a doula is a support person who um, is there for, I would say anyone who is experiencing um, especially big life transitions um, and change or uh, sometimes hardship. And I use that really widely at first because there are doulas for all kinds of things, but most commonly people hear about doulas in terms of, um, in terms of birth. Um, so what's really popular is having a birth doula or a prenatal doula as well, who's there before the birth. There's also postpartum doulas uh, that are there to assist after the baby is born. Um, there are grief doulas as well, um, abortion doulas, and they are really there for the person to provide emotional support, to answer questions, uh, to connect them with resources, to advocate. Uh, it could be advocating at, at doctor's appointments and things like that, or even transportation to and from. Uh, depending on what it is, it may be even be helping that person uh, around the house, especially postpartum. Um, it may look like making a couple meals, doing laundry, that kind of thing. And plus checking on how uh, the person who just gave birth is doing. Doulas can also support uh, the person, the people in the network or community of the person who's giving birth or something like that. So for example, I also support my client's partners or if there's kids, I. I can support them directly or I can help the client with here's how these people can support you as you go through this thing. Um, And yeah, 
I think that's I think that's a basic overview, but um it's a doula, especially in especially I, I think in any in any space, whether it's a birth doula, there's there's death doulas as well. Um they are there for the needs of the client. Like think of it as a person who is there solely for your emotional support, uh educational support about whatever health thing is going on, like they are there for you and don't influence you to make decisions one way or another, but rather make sure that you are informed so that you can make the decision that you want for your body. And then they just support you in whatever that that is. Uh, so yeah. Like an emotional concierge. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Well, that, I mean, that sounds like a lot of space to hold. And of course, if there's anybody who, you know, I feel like would be able to do that, it's you. Um, but, you know, what does the training look like um, in order to do that? Because that sounds like a big job. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one thing I will add to that a caveat is that the doulas do not um, give medical advice or like medical interventions we we provide information we do not <laughs> you know we especially yeah we we provide we provide information we do not tell you you should do this you should you, you know we let people know of of their options so there's there's a little responsibility <laughs> taken off in in that sense but the training um most basic training like looks like learning about the um learning about the reproductive system you know, anatomy and all that uh, about about um, the stages of, of pregnancy, um, signs and symptoms of pregnancy, um, stages of labor as well, different comfort measures um, that you can use throughout um, prenatal or labor or postpartum. It can look like learning a little bit about nutrition. Um, yeah, they, they, and, they, and they kind of vary. Some people right off the bat learn to be full spectrum or what's called full spectrum doulas, uh, meaning they cover prenatal, birth, postpartum, um, grief, uh, miscarriage, adoption, um, any of those, those things. They really like work across the, the gamut of what people need and their whole points to be inclusive. And then there are people who, you know, break it up more and maybe specialize. Uh, so some people are even lactation uh, doulas or, you know, they have their doula training but they focus on a lot on, on lactation. Um, some people just do postpartum. Some people just do birth. Um, some people are there even before that and helping people to get pregnant who want to have babies um, mm. or to adopt as well. Or if you're doing IVF or something like that, like the doulas who will be with you through that. Um, so yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty wide range of what the training could look like. But I think the things I named before are like the most basic nice. that everybody has to go through. And then like I said, I kind of got the specialized more training in abortion support. And I also took a course on Black Southern herbs and nutrition. Um, yeah, so that's where where my expertise is right now. 
So Dr. Okoye, who was on the show a few months ago, won the Guggenheim Fellowship last year to support the creation of a work that she's writing called A Truth Before Their Eyes, which is an opera about a Black woman experiencing medical racism. Oh, yeah, she talked about time. it on the show. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, for folks who are really interested in thinking about how this may show up for people in their real lives and, and sort of get to a place of understanding it beyond the, the term, I think either listening to what she's written or reading one of the many articles and blog posts that people have shared about their direct experiences will be really illuminating for folks to see how prevalent this really, really is. So mm -hmm. people like Paige who are doing interventions here to actually help Black people get the care they need in the absence of judgment and uh, presuppositions, it's so, so important. So important. And I have to add to that, that um, it's the medical medical racism and also the, um, I would say the, uh, what would I call it? Cis sexism, queer phobia, mm -hmm. transphobia, mm -hmm. um, fat phobia, especially. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, friends who identify as fat or plus size have had horrible experiences within the medical industrial complex Absolutely. I have as yeah. well yeah um and so like it's all those intersections that I that like I really hope to address with my work and I don't doubt that that you will and I no. hope people who are listening will also be inspired to to do the same right absolutely. because I think we need so many more people engaged in this work absolutely 100 percent so can you tell us a little bit more about, well, <laughs> now we're going down the, <laughs> the rabbit hole. Um, but I mean, do you want to tell us like, where did you train and are there any resources for people who maybe want to look into this? Yeah, actually, I'm really glad you asked that because there's a lot of different doula trainings out there and there's kind of different things you can do depending on what you want to focus on. So I ain't gonna name no names, but you should be careful about whether the doula training you choose actually has a lens that focuses on uh, or talks about and addresses the health disparities that you want to, <laughs> you know, that you hope to address with your work. So mm -hmm. maybe some of the first ones and the biggest ones that people recommend are not actually the first ones you should go with. And I'm gonna mm -hmm. leave it with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, well, I won't leave it with that. I will name some specific ones that are great. So I trained with uh, Shafia Monroe full circle doula training. Um, I. Mama Shafia is amazing. She is a Black midwife. And so it is a doula training, but her kind of philosophy and the way she teaches is very much based in like the Black Southern midwifery model of care. Um, and that's why it's called Full Circle because it's very wraparound. So I, I do recommend her. Um, uh, doula Trainings International, DTI. I've heard awesome things about their training and I've taken small trainings with them. I also like them because they do have uh, information on queer and trans inclusive birth work as well as anti-racist uh, birth work. Um, and I would say here um, in Minneapolis, 
I, or based in Minnesota, I can recommend checking out the Healing Justice Network. And, you know, shout out to folks who are here in this region. They have a resource list and with lots of doulas of color, some of which are also trainers um, on, their, on their website. Um, and there's also the National Black Doula Association, shout them out. So there you can find uh, doulas in your area and they also have their own training. And then the last one I'm gonna shout out is um, <laughs> Divine Wisdom. She is, uh, Miss Divine is amazing. She is a doula. She may be a mid officially a midwife, I'm not sure, uh, and, but also an herbalist. And so she teaches some great kind of additional learning, um, the one around the Black Southern herbs and nutrition that I was talking about, um, and kind of teaches you some tried and true um, herbal support that you can use with your clients or for yourself, um, nutrition, and what kind of traditional Black foods are actually really great for, for pregnant folks, and, uh, hmm. or whether you're, you're recovering postpartum, uh, hint, okra. Okra is amazing. Get your okra. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm a, I'm a shout out. Okay, cool. Well, we'll put um, any any links or social media handles that we can uh, get. We will put those in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, happy to share. So cool. Congratulations. Yeah, it's beautiful. Congratulations. That's just so cool. And I think we haven't said it explicitly yet on the podcast, but, you know, to everyone out there, all the scorekeepers out there, uh, happy Women's History Month and happy belated International Women's Day and happy upcoming on the 31st uh, Transgender Day of Visibility. Um, We love you all. (laughs) Y'all are awesome. Um, So I think perhaps we should get to our guest. Um, and I know for all of you who are expecting us to talk about the Emmett Till Opera, I can't. It, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for airy season. <laughs> but we have a spectacular guest coming up, uh, the amazing Ali from the Dream Unfinished on the Activist or- Orchestra in uh, New York City. Uh, she... I mean, she she dropped a word <laughs> on us. So brilliant, so talented, so awesome. Can't wait for you all to hear that conversation. And luckily, it's coming up right after the break. So we will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm super excited about our guest this afternoon. She is a very, very exciting person in the space in which we all work and also just a a dear friend. And I think you will really enjoy this conversation. Our guest this afternoon is Eun Lee. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Puppet cheer. Um, (laughs) As a teacher, musician, and arts professional, Eun has prioritized socially relevant musical experiences for audiences of all ages. From 2012 to 2016, she worked as a teaching artist throughout New York City and since 2015 has worked as an administrator at institutions such as the Orchestra of St. Luke's and Carnegie Hall. She currently serves as Associate Director of New Initiatives at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. 
Un is also the executive director of The Dream Unfinished, an activist orchestra which she co-founded in 2014. As some of you may remember, um, I chair the board of The Dream Unfinished, a project of which I am incredibly proud. Um, Un has also been invited to speak at The Dream on behalf of The Dream Unfinished at Chamber Music America, the Kennedy Center, Harvard University, and other institutions. She is a graduate of Northwestern University. Thank you for being with us this afternoon, Ms. Lee. Well, thank you so much for having me. What a what an honor and a treat. And I, I very much consider myself a scorekeeper. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I think I've ever met a scorekeeper. <laughs> like a self-identified scorekeeper. That's so exciting. <laughs> so I think this afternoon there are lots and lots of things that our, our listening audience will be really interested to hear your perspective on. I've certainly learned a lot from you myself over the last several years, um, but I think if we could start with the Dream Unfinished first, um, that's probably a really great place to sort of orient folks to what it is that you do. Could you say a little bit about what the Dream Unfinished is and um, give us some information about its genesis? Absolutely. So uh, as you had um had recited from the bio that I sent you. <laughs> we, we, we call ourselves an activist orchestra. And, you know, honestly, it's been fascinating for me over the years because when we came out in 2015 with that moniker, it was, uh, it was met with a lot of sort of double takes and people yeah. having this real open question if not suspicion as far as why the words activist and the word orchestra would be <laughs> juxtaposed um but the reason why we claimed that and and, and continue to claim it quite proudly is the, the way in which we work is that we use uh almost exclusively music by composers of color to then draw attention towards issues that are impacting communities of color based in new york so um and as far as how it was founded i it was largely in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, basically it was a group of musicians in New York City who gathered together in response, I would say specifically to the killings of Eric Garner, um, as well as Michael Brown. And, and so a group of musicians who came together and, and sort of asked out loud this question of, is there anything in the space of classical music that we can be doing towards these topics? And when we realized that at least immediately around us, the answer was no, then it was a matter of finding the answer within ourselves and finding a way where it was through this collective then of, um, initially it was this one-off concert that uh, none of us knew what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there was no money, there was no venue, <laughs> there was no nothing, um, but somehow it actually came together into what was truly one of the most memorable experiences of my life, period, but very much so in my life as an arts practitioner. Um, and it was also one of those things where, as I said, with none of us knowing anything, by the end of the night, I was like, great we're done. <laughs> uh, and but then, of course, it was one of those things where the musicians actually who, again, as I said, we had no money. So they had played for free. Um, they had done this like really sort of quite taxing set of rehearsals and then this 
really big performance. We had a 98 piece orchestra our first year because that's wow. how many musicians were free that night and cared about this cause um, and wanted to say and do something about it. And honestly, most of that 98 piece orchestra crammed itself into a bar <laughs> after the concert. And because everyone was just wanting to linger and digest and process and um, and then asking repeatedly, so when are we going to do this again? And it was really from that that I realized like, oh, this is something really bigger than just this one night that we all experienced. And that was so we we did the. I think very typical journey of a lot of artist collectives where we were fiscally sponsored and still just trying to kind of figure out who and what we were and what we were doing. Um, but then when we realized that, no, this is something that we wanted to really establish, uh, we actually became a 501c3. And then, and, and we've since um, been following this model where, again, we, we find these topics, so we identify these topics, and then we identify composers that we feel in some way, shape, or form reflect those issues um, and then program these events all over New York City. Wonderful. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's amazing. That is so cool. I'm curious, like, what are some of the past events that uh, you all have put on um, and how have they been received by the community? Yeah, so it's been a real range of topics that we have covered through the seasons. Uh, probably the season where we had a lot of public recognition was in 2016. Um, so that season was entitled Sing Her Name. And mm -hmm. it was an homage to the woman of Black Lives Matter, um, women and of course, you know, female identifying individuals. And um, so through that, we premiered this new work by uh, Courtney Bryan called Yet Unheard, which I think Lee has actually mentioned on the score. Mm -hmm. um, and we're quite proud of that piece because as I'm sure a lot of listeners and you all know, often, you know, you there are new works that are premiered and then it's really, they don't necessarily have a life after the premiere. But this piece has really, it's been performed all over the country. Um, and it's a really extraordinary work. Uh, it's so composed by Courtney Bryan with a text by uh, the poet Sharon Strange, and it was written for vocalist Helga Davis. Um, I remember actually, Lee, because I think you said that the piece was for soprano and tiny bit of fact check, but <laughs> as, as, as um, folks on this, uh, your listeners may know, Helga is sort of known for her range, uh, mm -hmm. vocal range. So the parts of the um, selection, she's she is very much in the soprano range and the parts she's actually, uh, she's hitting the bass clef. Oh. And um, okay. yeah, it's really, <laughs> I, I, I hope that other people beyond Helga can perform it. Um, because <laughs> I, yeah, and, I, and I also hope that Helga will perform it many, many times and many, many she's places. She's extraordinary. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so that was certainly one of our, um, you know, bigger splashier events, um, but other seasons and other concerts that we've done since um, that I would want to bring up. Um, you know, our, our last orchestral performance before COVID times uh, mm -hmm. was called Deep River. And it focused on uh, communities of color that have been impacted by environmental issues. Um, and I was actually quite proud of that programming because it really, we were able to touch on not only um, 
things that are sort of further shores, like uh, like pointing to the ongoing recovery really from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, um, but then also hyper-local issues, like frankly, the ongoing recovery from Hurricane Sandy mm-hmm. in New York, uh, because that community in Queens really has not fully recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that we were able to you know, use music to speak to that these climate issues, and I think you know, it's even something different in 2022 versus when we were doing the concert in 2019, because at that point, people were still sort of in the headspace of, oh, climate change, but that's that's something kind of, you know, in those states or in those countries. And and obviously now we all, I think it's, it's very clear, it's inching towards all of us, wherever we are. Um, but the fact that we were able to use music to cover um, and speak to such a wide range of uh, regions and communities that are impacted by a truly singular issue. Um, I think that was something that we were pretty proud of presenting. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds so amazing. And I think I I also love hearing about, about the Dream Unfinished and groups like it that are these um, multiracial like kind of coalitions, but that often I think form like I I hear so many of these formations that form often around like Black Lives Matter, like huge movement movement moments or after like being, yeah, being catalyzed by often like specifically anti-Black police violence. And um, and so it's just like striking me the the intersections and and how like folks often use as a jumping point and like see how this connects to all of us. Like this is a thing with all of us. So um, I'm also wondering if you can speak to like how that has, shown up in your life and maybe even before and into the founding of the dream unfinished like what what drew you to this work um and yeah yeah what were like your your experiences with activism in this with in the space before um sure yeah um i mean i would it's interesting because i had a a similar question as far as you know if i had any sort of um role models or, or people in my family. And initially my reaction was no, but then um, I actually, I, I realized I was wrong in a way. Um, so I come from a family of visual artists and uh, my parents specifically are children's book illustrators. And um, my father's best known book is called Baseball Saved Us. And it's mm-hmm. actually the story of the Japanese internment camps during the US. And I was sort of reflecting further on his career as an illustrator. And he's done works on a number of pretty heavy topics. Um, other children's books included, and, and you know, I think partly because of him, his background being an Asian American illustrator, the topics then skewed towards that demographic. Um, but he also illustrated a biography of Sammy Lee, who was one of the first sort of um, uh, the one of the earliest figures of Asian American athletes in Olympic sports, uh, as well as uh, Sugihara, who was the Japanese, uh, I believe, ambassador that was signing visas so that there could be, um, you know, these refugees that were escaping the Holocaust, um, you know, guiding their um, and 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 supporting their ability to um, to transport themselves to safety as well as uh, in a, with a Korean publisher, he, he did this book that was speaking to the story of the Korean comfort woman during the Japanese occupation. Mm. 
And so I, I kind of sat back then and realized, well, I mean, he's in a way has been an activist through his artwork and through um, the, the, the body of work that he's really been creating, as well as the fact that it's a vehicle for wider, younger audiences to be made aware of these stories. And, you know, obviously I can't leave out my mom, uh, <laughs> but over the recent active in terms of um, environmental topics in Korea. Um, so they've actually been involved with different sorts of, and, and, and it's just funny because they're actually a very sweet, obviously a little bit older Korean couple, but they have these photos of them at these different protests for, um, you know, going against uh, national parks and making sure that uh, the going, I should say going against the development of national parks and, and, and fighting towards um, their preservation, as well as just increasingly asking these questions of how we can be more responsible stewards of, um, of the resources that we have. And so they've been working on this book project for the last literally 10 years. Um, and it's about to be published in the next couple of months. And it's really the sort of memoir of their time um, when they were living in a neighborhood very close to a national park and the ways in which they're inviting people to really just consider how uh, we can all be more thoughtful as far as the the uh, the ways in which we're living around us. So uh, that was a really long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. It was beautiful, beautifully thorough. <laughs> um, but I mean, I so actually answer your question beyond just my folks. Um, as far as activism showing up, I mean, I think that I've actually always been quite... Um, I would have never used this word for myself, but I remember actually my high school clarinet teacher uh, described me as entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, and I did have these uh, sorts of, um, I guess, initiatives and things that um, I put together. I think, you know, in high school, probably what was most memorable was, um, you know, a lot of seniors have a senior project where they um, take the last, I would say, you know, three to five weeks of their senior year and they spend it volunteering with an organization and you know so typically when most people have their senior project they um they do something that's kind of low-key because it's their senior year and they're you know senioritis and all those sorts of things i read uh, they a book of poetry <laughs> <laughs> that's not low-key at all it was pretty low-key <laughs> Wait, you wrote a book of poetry or you well, read like, I mean, like, not like a book, but it was like a, a like 20 page pamphlet. Well, so you, you generated book. something. I generated like, something. I generated yeah. something. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> book. A, a book. Um, and, and I decided that my decidedly not low-key task would be to uh, produce a benefit concert for 88.3 WBGO. <laughs> Yeah, see, that's we, way more high key <laughs> than what I did. <laughs> we actually premiered uh, uh, this work that was um, Swan Lake Swing, and it was in, it was like, it, it's sort of in the style of how Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker was reimagined by Duke Ellington. So we did the same, but for the Swan Lake Suite. Um, so, and I, I remember when, when I was called entrepreneurial and I sort of pieced these things together, I was like, oh yeah, like th these are things that, um, certainly take a lot of wherewithal <laughs> to try to think that you can pull together. Um, so I think in, in those ways, like I've just been curious around um, these 
sorts of topics and issues that I care about and then finding ways of engaging with them that I think is sort of, you know, even unbeknowingly to me, go a step beyond what at that moment I'm even capable of doing. Um, and then it's really in sort of, um, <laughs> I guess, frankly, getting in over my head that then we, we see where the projects sort of um, evolve and become into things unto themselves. No, that that's that's great to hear. And um, while we're on the topic of projects, my senior project, uh, my friends and I made the world's largest periodic table, and it ended up hanging in a bunch of science museums around the country. But that is the definition of a tangent. What I actually wanted to talk <laughs> See, about. I just wrote a book of poems about my ex-boyfriend. Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm like actually like... doing things. <laughs> I know that I know that's a tangent, but now I now I really want to know what Paige did, or it, or if there was a senior project. There was not a senior project, <laughs> and, but you know what? I was the kind of kid who was already too busy. My life, I didn't need a senior project. I'm I had choir, sure. I had theater, I had church stuff, I had these grades. I had yeah. Your schedule was your senior project. <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much, yeah. Auditions and things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing if you could take a nap, perhaps in the middle of all that. Right. I may have managed to fit like a, a cute little senior skip day in there, or something like that. You know. There you go. You know, one of the questions that I have is, you know, hearing about the work that you're doing at TDU. Am I in the know now? TDU. <laughs> you're in the club. Okay. Um, you know, just this incredible, you know, beautiful, progressive, you know beautiful work that you all are doing in the classical music space. And so many of the people that we talk to on this show, you know, or who are out there, you know, other scorekeepers who are listening, you know, have, there's just sort of this reputation for, you know, classical music, opera being just very stuffy, very behind the curve when it comes to these issues. And so I'm curious, you know, if that's sort of your feeling about it as well and why you think that is and what are some of the changes that you think that you know classical music organizations opera organizations should be making um, as we head into our hopefully bright new future <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that sentiment is true Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was in a conversation a couple of years ago and um, one of the folks who were at the table, he was sort of bashfully admitting that he had never been to an orchestra concert. And I said to him, that's not your fault, that's the orchestra's fault. And, you know, I think there really has been this I culture mean, of, <laughs> you know, and I, I like to quote this often from my friend Alex Lang, who would be a wonderful guest on the score, by the Actually, way. Actually, you're so right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he's, so Alex is a clarinetist with the Phoenix Symphony, and he uses this analogy a lot, how classical music, specifically orchestras, they're like golf courses. They are so resource intensive um, and because they are so, they're so involved in terms of maintaining and, and keeping that uh, they have to then, in order to keep themselves, there's been this legacy and history of keeping themselves in and keeping other people out. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that it just, it takes so much to keep the golf course running. And, and he, he uses that as an analogy to then kind of ask the question, well, what if classical music and what if these sorts of music making spaces, it was more like hacky sack, you know, something mm. that you can just kind of take and do anywhere with anyone. Um, and, you know, there was always that like weird kid in middle school that was like trying to get everyone to play hacky sack with him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, how we can kind of be that space and not these, you know, beveled gates that only admit a certain kind of person in so that they can play a certain game of golf. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the stuffy sentiment is, is very much true. And there's um, in recent years, especially I would say in the wake of 2020, um, orchestras are now much more sort of on alert as far as realizing that it's, um, it's, it's not viable for their bottom line to, mm -hmm. to keep maintaining the golf course mentality. Um, but I, I guess, you know, and Lee and I have talked about this before, and I think in some ways I'm a bit more cynical than he is <laughs> on this, um, because I worry that the, the changes that we are seeing, yes, they are absolutely gesturing in the right direction, but I, you know, how much is it with the correct intentions and how much of it instead really this sort of, you know, kind of corporate interest of maintaining themselves. Like, it, like, like when you see things like these big banks that all of a sudden are saying that they're going to have the pride icon all over their, um, you know, websites for the month. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so like, how do we make sure that it's not that space and instead that it is a space that is really coming more deeply with authenticity? And, you know, I think one of the cleanest and clearest ways and mandates of meeting that is to make sure that any sort of equity that you're speaking to is not only however you're engaging with your external stakeholders, but also your internal stakeholders. You know, if you're talking that equity game, what does it look like inside your offices, in your work culture, in your hiring practices, in the ways in which you are just relating with each other, um, and then, you know, because I think that's actually a much more organic way in which then that can lead into, well, how are we better reaching audiences? How are we better reaching this mythic community <laughs> that we're serving? You know, like, how are we, how are we showing up outside um, after we've cleaned up ourselves inside? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of, yes. all of that all, all of, of that all of that <laughs> <laughs> i'm also thinking about how like so much of 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 what you've mentioned and even just like feeling like um classical music in general is behind the curve is like not a new sentiment that that like a lot of us have felt that way for a, for a long time um, and, you know, I've had varying degrees of, of speaking out about it or being able to have like the agency to speak out about it. Um, but I wonder like who in this space has, has been, uh, either a mentor or who has inspired you. Um, and yeah, like who's, who, who are, who do you look to even, even outside of, outside of this space? I love acti asking activists in general, like what's keeping them going and and whose work they're they're looking to I see it's just like this little this little web and you know it's interesting to know just how folks are are being 
are being fed because it's like you're simultaneously trying to do something new and at the same time you know it hasn't it's not that new <laughs> like there are things there are things to learn or there are things to like go back and get so yeah yeah no absolutely no 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 um and hopefully i can meet it with a with a good answer but as far as folks to look to um historically speaking uh I, I appreciated that you said earlier, Paige, the, the fact that the Dream Unfinished is an interracial cohort. Um, and so it's, I think, through that lens that I really think of the ways in which there have been these figures who've preceded us that are real sources of inspiration. Um, so for folks who, I, I guess, look a little bit more like me, um, there are, of course, these extraordinary examples of people like Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kochiyama. Um, and then, but then within the space of classical music, I, I, I still just marvel at stories like Florence Price mm -hmm. and, you know, really just the fact that there was every single, in, in so many ways, I mean, if, and of course she was absolutely lauded in, in terms of getting the premiere with the CSO and the Wanamaker Prize and, and all those sorts of things, but there were still so many obstacles that were set up against her and the fact that she was so persistent because she so believed in her craft and I'm so grateful that she was because now we have this incredible body of music that we can really be um, diving into for generations to come. So, you know, people like her um, on a much sadder sort of tale, uh, also composers like Julia Perry. Um, again, you know, this real sort of resilience um, and and I because I think that's just something that we have to keep in mind that so much of the work that um, we are trying to do now as we're building and reimagining a better future is really while we stand on the shoulders of uh, you know the giants that came before us. Um, and then as far as folks who I think of um, in terms of my immediate colleagues of whom I am so honored to be in company with, uh, there are organizations like Challenge the Stats, which is ably led by Angelica Hairston, um, Castle of Our Skins, um, which has this incredible uh, artistic output that's largely uh, through uh, Ashley Gordon. Um, and then right here in New York City, the Harlem Chamber Players. Um, Liz Player was actually a, a wonderful sort of mentor to the Dream Unfinished, especially in our earlier years. And the work that they have been producing and premiering in the last few seasons has been really exciting. I, I definitely been thinking about Grace Lee Boggs as you were as you were talking earlier. I'm glad you brought her up. <laughs> I I wanted to ask. Um, Paige's question really got me thinking, and I'm curious um if you ruled the world imagine that what would you want to see different in how presenting organizations are engaging underrepresented communities ah if i ruled the world what a dangerous start to a question <laughs> <laughs> well you know i I, I, I'm, if people have heard me chat about this stuff before, um, I really feel that we are in a very liminal time right now. And, and what I mean by that is that it's a very imperfect and in-between time mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, because 
pointing to your earlier question of classical music being stuffy and behind the times, it was so behind the times that I think in many ways there is now this sort of pendulum swing um, really hard in the other direction that I don't know we necessarily want to find ourselves in. Um, particularly with these, what I've observed, um, some institutions doing a sort of ambulance chasing, mm. where it's like, okay, something terrible and traumatic happens. Let's have a concert. <laughs> something <laughs> terrible and traumatic happens. Post it on social media, say who you stand with. And, um, and because then that opens and invites the question of, well, where, when were you standing with us before? Mm. you know like like where where are the receipts of <laughs> of that solidarity um before everyone found themselves on instagram so um but i i think that it, we are going to be in for this sort of bumpy and awkward period because we're reconciling with so much and so as far as if i rule the world and if things were my hope is that we are eventually able to actually move past this and be in a space where really a lot of these sorts of artistic statements are more implicit than explicit. So, you know, it doesn't have to be all these bells and whistles of, oh my God, we're programming a black composer. <laughs> you know, and instead, it's like, oh, the black composer is actually next to like, like the, uh um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try to like david baker his music is next to brahms and is next to alice mary smith and you know this is just a good program it, it doesn't have to be any awareness month you know no one had to have died recently like if this is if if, if orchestras are going in through their uh mission statements of feeling that they want to be stewards of an art form then be stewards of the art form and and present a, a balanced program that also happens to be actually quite inclusive and representative um and and doesn't have to have all of this sort of fanfare that's associated with it so um and you know i think it's doing things like that and then also really sort of rethinking how it is that they engage with their audiences. And, and um, you know, this is a thing that I had shared with uh, the team at Minnesota Opera that I hope I can also share with listeners to the podcast, but this idea of Sherry Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation. Um, so for listeners who um, aren't aware, it is this sort of framework or model um, that this sociologist Sherry Arnstein had devised. And it was actually originally created as a way of sort of asking and analyzing how it is that generally government agencies were working with communities in terms of any kinds of interventions, like perfect example being a playground. You know, did the community decide Number one, if they wanted the playground. <laughs> Number two, <laughs> where the playground is. Number three, what the playground is made of. You know, like like those sorts of questions, because so often there are people who mean really, really well, um, but then they just go and make the playground without actually asking anyone if they wanted a, the playground to begin with. Um, so that would be my other thing if I was this, you know, terrifying dictator. Um, <laughs> that how how we can get folks to actually really reflect on how it is that they are speaking with stakeholders. Um, not, and actually not just speaking with but really 
authentically sharing power so that any sorts of um, programming that is meant to be based or sort of um, speak to a specific audience, that that specific audience has a voice, many voices at the table um, before anything is even implemented or operationalized. Yeah. You sound yeah. like a pretty benevolent dictator to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the way that you you describe the state that we're living in as liminal. You know, first and foremost, it's one of my favorite words, but <laughs> but it's so it's so true though. And you know, being in this liminal liminal state right now, where you have you know a lot of organizations that like tend to have the best of intentions, but like you know are not you know <laughs> are not you know using that ladder um, model at all. And you know, especially you know, as a, a person of the global majority, um, who is an artist, who is an administrator, sometimes it gets so frustrating, um, the, just the pace, the slowness of it all, um, you know, trying to, you know, change things, trying to convince people of, you know, basically everything you just talked about. <laughs> um, but I wonder, like, do you have any advice as somebody who, you know, is on the inside, who is doing this work um, in such a, a cool, progressive organization? Um, what is the advice that you have for, you know, young administrators or young artists um, who perhaps are feeling a little, kind of claustrophobic, a little, you know, just stymied by sort of the pace of, of the changes. The advice that I would share is to really make sure, and this is, I think, particularly challenging given the way that, um, the way that social media is devised and, and the way that really these sorts of unwittingly we are engaging with large corporations. Uh, but it is this terrible hazard right now where we exist in echo chambers. Mm -hmm. So what my advice would be is to make sure that as far as uh, especially younger folks who are developing uh, their network in the field, to make sure that their network is diverse in the true sense of the word. And, you know, that it's folks that are also, I, I am able to gain so much clarity and perspective because I I think I have actually a pretty wide range of people who I can sort of just check in with. Um, and so wide meaning you know, from different age brackets, wide meaning from large institutions to big institutions, wide meaning, of course, you know, demographically where these folks are hailing from. Um, because I think that it's really through having a large balance of perspectives uh, that then people can come to their own conclusions rather than whatever the, I, I'm, I'm supposed to call it meta now, right? Like whatever, that, whatever, whatever, that, whatever that algorithm is feeding you of what it thinks you want to know. Instead, like how you can make sure that the people that are, are those little voices on your shoulders um, that they that like that's as wide of a breath as possible so that you're really getting as much of as much of the picture as you can. A question that's that's coming up for me and maybe because of uh, as, as we talk about things like like repertoire and especially what um, 
especially with folks, what folks with resources can do. Something we often talk about on the show is kind of the balance, especially when telling the stories. I think we've often talked about it in relation to Black folks, but really for any marginalized people, the balance of telling the truth, um, especially about our trauma uh, versus exploiting it and, and where that line is, knowing that we need, you know, some of everything, like life is, <laughs> life is complicated. Um, and I just wonder like what your thoughts are on, on that, on especially this, this trend of, or, or what often feels like having so much of the bad and not our triumphs, or at least something that's a little more complicated than just uh, a tragedy, you know? So I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that balance and, and even how you, how you find it, if there's a way that you, <laughs> that you kind of strike that balance. That's a tricky question because I think it's an evolving thing, you know? Uh, so some of the, actually all of the music that the Dream Unfinished has commissioned and premiered has been really in response to some sort of awful incident. And, uh, you know, that was in our earlier years. And I think partially part of the re reason why we had made those artistic choices was because that was still at a time when it was, quote unquote, not really polite <laughs> to engage in those topics. Uh, I know that on this podcast, you mentioned Joel Bentley Thompson and uh, his seven last words of the unarmed. And there was a time when actually there were ensembles that were too scared to program that piece. Um, whereas now in 2022, it, it's sort of the thing to program because it is unfortunately so topical and so relevant and so top of mind. So, um, so I think part of our rationale for when we did uh, make those commissions initially was because there, at that moment, at that particular moment, there really wasn't a space for artists who wanted to be composing and writing on these topics to then express themselves. Um, there wasn't really a, an, a, an opportunity to go into these issues that were clearly, th th that they wanted to be, you know, writing and, and generating work around. Um, so where we are now, uh, we, you know, actually we are working on some other commissions, but they are, as you said, Paige, decidedly not around these sorts of darker topics and instead trying to use, um, one of them is, and hopefully if I can get all of this ironed out, but one of them is going to be uh, really celebrating the poetry and legacy of James Emmanuel. And, and so I think it is actually this, and I've heard, you know, you, you all on this show mention uh, Black Joy and celebrating uh, the real sort of richness and, and, and positivity that can come out of one's lived experience. Um, so I, I do, at least for this particular moment, see us working with that goal in mind. But as far as a sort of like more evergreen answer to your question, I think it's really just, it, it's, it's on the artist. You know, I, I think that this is an, an, an instance where uh, as, a, as a presenter or as someone who is commissioning new work, that rather than making any sort of dictate or parameter around it that's um, constraining their artistic practice, to instead just try to provide as 
blank of a canvas as possible. And if the artist wants to celebrate one thing or, you know, commemorate another thing, that's, that is their choice. And however it is that we can really just be best supporting that choice. Um, I would really like to see, uh, you know, foundations and funders and arts institutions moving more in that trend rather than having this sort of wish list, because I think that gets into the sort of um, commodification of trauma um, and, and creating that sort of, um, you know, domino effect. Whereas I think, you know, artists want to, artists want to be artists and they want to make art and um, that art should be what they dictate and not what someone else has made the decision on behalf of them for. Yeah, that that sounds exactly right. Um, and I, I know we're getting to the end of the hour here, and this has been a really, really rich conversation. I, you've definitely given me a lot to reflect on as oh, absolutely. we go on. But I wanted to ask you, before we thank you for your time, <laughs> it's a rare thing that we get on this show, someone who actually programs work and commissions work. So I'd love to hear if you have a recommendation or two for our listeners about whose work you like right now, who are you listening to, who do you think we should be listening to, anything like that. Sure. Um, so for folks who are, for practitioners that we have in our circle, um, as I mentioned, Joelle Bentley Thompson, um, Trevor Weston, Courtney Bryan. Um, hopefully, these are all names that are already familiar to your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, Wang Ji, uh, um, I've I've actually been really excited to to learn of her work and to continue to get to know it um, more closely. Um, and then actually, so this is uh, I've been uh, picking up my own instrument again recently. And so for uh, composers who are not among us, but who can continue to be <laughs> programmed, um, certainly uh, Alice Mary Smith, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, David Baker, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, I think people don't realize that there's actually so much great repertoire that's already out there that someone has composed. Um, so, you know, the ways in which they can be utilizing catalogs like Subito Music, Presto Music, Lauren Kaiser Publishing, um, so that you can really unearth new treasures that are new to you, but that have been out in the world for some time. Um, yeah, I think I would leave it there for now. Does the Dream Unfinished, or TDU, for those of us in the know, um, have any projects coming up this spring that our beautiful listeners might be interested in attending or supporting? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think a lot of it would be supporting because we are actually going back into the space of in-person performances unless if any of, well, actually your listeners are from all over. So if We have an them, international audience, ma'am. India. Absolutely. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so for those who find themselves in New York City between the months of, I would say, April and August, um, we do actually have some performances coming up. Um, there is an engagement where we'll be doing a portrait concert of music by the composer Brent Michael Davids. Um, this is still a little bit under wraps, but we are working on some uh, voter engagement efforts towards the Queen, the um, 
in Queens towards the June primary. So that'll be later in that month. Um, some dates that are actually set. So July 9th, we're going to be doing a live community reading of Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. And then August 20th, uh, we had a really successful uh, health and wellness music festival last year. And so we are going to reprise that. So that'll be the Vitals Festival. And both of those two events that I just mentioned uh, will be taking place in partnership with the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning. Awesome. Lovely, lovely. Thank you. Those are great. Thank you. Yes, yes. Everybody check all those out. And before we let you go, you know, of course, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with oh, us. Thank you for having this me. This was such a beautiful conversation. I feel like I learned so much. I have so much, like Leah said, to reflect on and think about in my work as well. But before we let you go, we just want to make sure that everybody gets all the information that they can about TDU and everything else. So um, can you drop that website, those social media channels, um, all that good stuff? Absolutely. So we are the dreamunfinished.org. And generally our handle is, if I get it right, it, on Twitter and Instagram, we're at dreamunfinished. And on, I guess now meta, it is at the dreamunfinished. <laughs> so, Never get over that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, but, um, and, and we're actually a pretty easy Google search too. So if folks want to find us that way, but uh, we are uh, very excited about our upcoming engagements this season and hope people will come out and support us. And, and we're also so thrilled to, um, you know, be featured and included on the score. And uh, I can't wait to keep listening and hearing whoever you have as your next guest. Well, I assure you the pleasure is ours. And for all the scorekeepers out there, um, check the show notes, um, all that, uh, all the links and everything will be down there. And Anli, thank you so much once again for being with us. This was awesome. <laughs> Yay. And we will be right back with Pure Black Joy. Woo! <laughs> Right, ladies and germs we are back <laughs> <laughs> for our favorite segment of the podcast and a one and a two and a one two three four it's peanut butter uh, jelly uh, time peanut butter uh, jelly time uh, peanut butter uh, jelly time peanut butter jelly 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 <laughs> I hope that never gets old for people. <laughs> uh, beautiful, beautiful. This is Pure Black Joy, where we uh, discuss the people, places, things, general ideas um, that are Black and are bringing us joy this week. So, I mean, I can go first if you all... I think you should. Okay. I will. So uh, I'm very excited about this because um, right here in St. Paul, Minnesota, where my Black Behind is currently sitting, <laughs> <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, um, the Mitchell Hamlin um, School of Law announced the Center for the Study of Black Life and the Law, which is Ooh. opening oh. uh, this fall, which is so exciting under the leadership of their founding director, Dr. T. Anansi Wilson. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but it's just so exciting, um, you know, reading all about it. Um, you know, the 
the um, the center is, um, and I'll just read from their website, um, the goal is to be the flagship setting for the study of Black life and the law at Mitchell Hamlin within the uh, Twin Cities, the Midwest, and the nation. They're dedicated to the intellectual, political, artistic, and social development of people of African descent, inclusive of both Black Americans and African immigrants, particularly as it relates to the law and the afterlives of chattel slavery um, in order to facilitate and maintain the realization of the complete, equitable, and dignified citizenship necessary for functioning cities, states, and democracies. They seek to expand both the public and academic understanding of Black Americans' lack of access to civil rights, human rights, freedom, and equal justice under the law by integrating legal advocacy, grassroots organizing, artistic expression, and inquiry and academic study. Uh, the center will serve as a resource for local community members, Mitchell Hamlin students and faculty, policymakers, and scholars across the nation. Through its focus on scholarship programming and community engagement, the center supports scholarly, professional, and creative work that seeks to foster social justice for Black people. And they, um, they have a, a video on their website with Dr. Wilson explaining that, you know, it's uh, you know, a, a place for, you know, critical theory and talking about, you know, cases and laws, past, present, and future um, that are, you know, affecting Black folks, Black queer folks um, as well are specifically included in that. But it's also just going to be a place of rejuvenation and community um, for people to come together and just draw strength from each other and be in community with each other. And I just think it's the coolest thing. And I'm so excited that this is coming to our community. And so I just wanted to shout that out because that's dope. It really okay. is. Hey, go ahead. That's awesome. So who's next? I'll go next. Um, so mine is kind of related <laughs> to staying in the in the realm of uh, catching babies um, <laughs> out of my <laughs> My pure black joy this week is um, Miss uh, Jenny Joseph. And if you do not know, Jenny Joseph is a black midwife and she is also one who has a center for midwifery, um, midwifery training in Florida. She is a pioneer of talking about um, bringing awareness to um, the health disparities among Black folks when it comes to birth and really making noise about it and also providing solutions, saying, here's what we should do about it. And she is coming up this week because Time, in their first ever Women of the Year, uh, Women of the Year cohort, named Miss Joseph as one of their women of oh, the year wow. and has a long, beautiful profile about her work. And it's just so exciting because she seems to be one of these people for whom this kind of attention is long overdue. Um, so yay for Miss Jenny Joseph and <laughs> yay for time for also choosing her. Mm -hmm. There are some other like awesome people among on the list, like Allison Felix and MJ Rodriguez and, um, yeah, but especially shout outs to Miss Jenny Joseph. That brought me joy to see that, uh, to see that she was highlighted and so that like her work and people who are providing solutions to the current crisis are being uplifted. Like, okay, yeah, we know the problem. Now let's 
support all these black women like Jenny Joseph who are out here trying to fix it. So yay. Yay. Absolutely. And um, my pure black joy is last week I got to interview um, a black violinist, music educator, and novelist named Brendan Slocum. He has written a dazzling first novel called The Violin Conspiracy. It's getting raves everywhere about a black musician who discovers that his family heirloom pop pops fiddle is actually a priceless Stradivarius and the violin ultimately is stolen and Brendan takes us on a journey of not only solving the mystery of how it was stolen but like the particulars of this black family their time in slavery he goes into a lot of detail about how something like um a family's priceless heirloom could have ended up in the hands of uh, the Black family. He also does a really interesting exploration of um, what the experience is of being a person of color in classical music. He does not hold back on how complicated a space it is. And it's a really great book, a, a very quick read. And we had a really lovely conversation. So shout to uh, Club Book at the Friends of the St. Paul Minnesota Libraries for organizing it. And I will have the show notes include um, a link where you can see the interview because Brendan is just interesting and funny and a huge comic book nerd like me as well. So we had a, a great time together and I encourage everybody to go out and support this brother in um, this new stage of his career um, writing really fascinating novels that sort of narrativize um, the work that we have been engaged in at the company for a while thinking about how black people do and do not fit into classical music so nice i like all three of those me too (laughs) good things happening everywhere it's true well you know (laughs) <laughs> not even february anymore <laughs> spring is springing absolutely well that brings us to the end of our show this week just want to thank Lynn lee so much for being with us want to thank the two of you as always for being here thank me for getting through the winter <laughs> still being alive. you know you're, you're more than welcome um and thank all of you out there for listening all you beautiful scorekeepers um as usual um if you would be so lovely as to leave us a review um wherever you're listening to this that would be so um helpful and special and exciting um one with words preferably (laughs) um but if it's just the five stars that's okay too five though five i will say it again but i don't want to have to (laughs) um and uh review subscribe share with your friends all that good stuff and uh we will be back um in two weeks with hopefully the first in our three-part installment on carmen three-part series rather first installment of our series on Carmen. There we go. Those are words. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, Carmen is coming up um, at the Ordway in May, and we have all sorts of 
folks who are involved who are going to come on and talk to us about the show. We're going to think and talk about Carmen um, in the pop culture. Um, if you are not familiar with Carmen, you probably are. And <laughs> but we will be back in two weeks for um for that and until then any words of wisdom y'all for the people uh, uh yeah. i'll take that as a no <laughs> <laughs> but just be good be safe wear your mask if you yes. want to do that. Um, Keep wearing the masks. Yes. 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 And, you know, get your booster mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. And stay safe. And we love you. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>